You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, let's begin with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you and praise you for your work on our behalf in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that that work is something that has begun in him through his death and resurrection that will be completed at the last day when we are raised from the dead um, to live on eternally with you. And we thank you, Lord, that in the meantime and here and now, you continue to do your work um, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and in your um, wonderful love for us, uh, the love that has uh, and the power that has raised Jesus from the dead. And so we ask, Lord, even now that it would be by your power that we um, hear from you and not from me this morning, that you would take my words and let them be um, your word of encouragement to us. Uh, would you, Lord, be our teacher this morning as we look at this a gift of sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been tracking with me for the last few weeks, whether here in person or online, one of the things you'll know is that this is my uh, fourth class on sanctification. The first three classes, I sort of, in class number one, I kind of talked about what sanctification is not, according to scripture, and um, and then what it could be. And so if sanctification if yes, there is this sense of holiness and this sense of righteousness that is that is active, um, and yet it's a, a gift from God also that it's totally in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. Um, we could say, in one way, we could in one regard, we could say that sanctification, um, if justification is by grace through faith and not by works, then we can't just turn to sanctification and say, well, sanctification is by works. It's not justification by faith and then sanctification by works. And we looked at Ephesians 2 with that regard, and we talked about how um, God's gift of grace is at the very beginning, and then also a gift throughout all the ages of eternity in the future, and it's also a gift of grace now in this life, the um, the life of the Christian in this world. And so we talked about what this could look like if, um, class number two, if if sanctification is not necessarily about us measuring some kind of growth in holiness. Yes, there might be a growth in holiness, and yet we're not in control of it. It's not ours to keep track of. As my mother says, we're not called to be fruit inspectors. Um, we have to trust that God is the one who will give the fruit. Then what are some things that we could um, say about um, sanctification? And we talked about how sanctification is could be best described as growth in grace. And so we looked at four different points about growth in grace. That um, growth in grace is... Um, well, first of all, that Christ is our sanctification. And so it's union with him that brings about this growth and grace through faith. Um, secondly, we talked about, um, hold on, let me just see. Yep, we talked about, I'm going to go back to that. We talked about, and number two, that the Holy Spirit is God's gracious gift for affecting this union with Christ and for our spiritual renewal. The, um, the work of sanctification is the work of, work, um, of him who is holy, the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, he is the agent of change in our lives. And then number three, we talked about how sanctification is not so much that we're progressing, let's say, upward toward a particular goal, this sort of image of growth, whether it's the ultimate growth at the last day when we'll be totally perfect and totally sinless or some kind of uh, pit stop along the way. Well, if I could just stop swearing or 
you know, stop this addiction or stop being late or stop um, this obsession with this particular thing. If I could just attain to this goal then, and so there's this effort to attain to the goal. Well, it's not so much that we're uh, meant to progress toward a particular goal, but rather that that goal is fastly approaching us um, the closer we get to our death. How wonderful is that? A great way to look at death, that upon our death, sin will die and we will be, um, we will be raised. We'll, we'll die and we'll be raised without sin. Our sin will die even as we die and then sin stays in the grave and we ra- are raised to new life. And so that goal, that eschatological goal, to use a big theological term, is rapidly approaching us. And the older you get, the faster it feels like it's coming on, doesn't it? <laughs> Time just flies by the older we get. And it's because that end, that wonderful, beautiful end, is approaching us. Our perfection is approaching us. Well, number four, and we talked about this a lot last week, is that growth and grace involves receiving forgiveness again and again. We talked about um, how God's mercies are new every morning. Um, and so these are just four little points about growth and grace um, that I've come up with along with um, relying heavily upon a Lutheran scholar and theologian named Gerhard Forday, who's my favorite, my bestie. Um, okay, so here's a little quote from point number one. Going back through those four four points with a little more depth. If our sanctification is, if Christ is our sanctification, as Saint Paul says in First Corinthians one thirty, if um, if our sanctification happens as we are in Christ, um, there's something I love. This quote from Calvin, I find this really helpful. I'm going to read all of it, but I gave it to you so you could look at it while I'm reading it. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. In other words, from ourselves. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity in his conception, if gentleness, it appears in his birth for Excuse me. By his birth, he was made like us in all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If reconciliation, in his descent into hell. If mortification of the flesh, in his tomb. If If newness of life, in his resurrection. If immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, in Christ, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. What a beautiful, encouraging Right. Um, so our our growth comes about through union with Christ, um, and as a means of sharpening our faith, um, there are three. Um, one one reform scholar, Sinclair Ferguson, points to these four different aspects of life, um, the Christian life, that are meant to strengthen and sharpen our faith. Why do we do these things, or why do we submit to these things? Well, simply because they increase our faith. Um, So the word increases and strengthens our faith. The fellowship of the church, what we're doing right now, (laughs) increases and strengthens our faith. The sacraments, submitting to baptism and the Lord's Supper, increases and strengthens our faith. 
sharpens our faith. And finally, this is our point for today that we'll focus on um, in a little bit in much more depth. God's work through the circumstances of our lives is part of what strengthens and sharpens our faith. These are the things especially that we have no control over. The things that we would never choose for ourselves, um, the decision uh, uh, to move across the country for a job, um, the um, the illness that we cannot control that we never des- des- uh, decided upon, of course, for ourselves that we never would have chosen, and yet um, that humbles us every day and causes us to rely upon God. These kinds of um, actions are all contained within God's providence. Um, and so rather than being seen as being terrible, awful things, as Christians, we can look at them as merciful gifts from God. Um, so let, we'll hopefully get there by the end of this class. You might say, Deborah, no way, I'm not right. I'm not there right now, and I wouldn't expect you to be. Um, but so looking, this is just one thought, point number three. We're not ascending or progressing up. I'm going back through. Can you tell I'm going back through number one? Number two, um, we're, we're filled with the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. Number three, we're not ascending or progressing upwards. Um, we're at, actually, it's that the steady invasion of the new, the new world, the new creature of Christ in Christ is approaching us. And I love this. It is not that sin is taken away from us, but rather that we are to be taken away from sin, heart, soul, and mind, as Luther put it. So that's point number three. Um, And then I I rested on point number four last week, that um, the life of the Christian is a life of constantly starting over. Um, That word from Jesus, his his first words recorded in Mark's gospel, repent and believe. Um, are something, those are words that we take on every day of our lives as Christian, as Christians. And Martin Luther said, to progress is always to begin again. We talked about this in terms of um, this humbling ourselves to look at our lives with honesty is not something that's scary. It is scary. It's terribly scary, apart from Christ. But because we've been saved by grace through faith, because we are not condemned in Christ Jesus, we can look at our lives um, without flinching um, because of God's grace already given to us. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Um, because we have not been condemned in Jesus Christ, and we know that our assurance, our um, salvation is sure, our acceptance before God is already in the bag. Jesus has already sealed it and won it. And for that reason, we can look at our lives. We can see our sin. We can say, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I, I really, I, and I did, and I've done worse. <laughs> and so I, I can believe that I would have done that. Um, if someone confronts us with our sin, we can say, we'll not so-and-so made me do it, or the dog ate my homework, or there was a wreck on 280, and that's why I'm late. By the grace of God, we could say, through the power of the Holy Spirit, yeah, I did that. I'm so sorry. Um, And that repentance can be um, just a a simple everyday aspect of our lives. Um, And so I talked about an antidote to the poison of self-righteousness last week, this taking on the slogan, I wouldn't put it past me. Yeah, I probably did that. Um, not just, and we can start with other people. When you look at the news or you look at terrible things that happen in the world, um, it helps me to say, well, I wouldn't put it past that person. They're both simultaneously a sinner and a saint. So, yeah, they, they probably did do that. That probably is a possibility in the realm of possibility of things that they would do. And then if I had to say that about someone else who was a Christian, I had to say it about myself, right? Um, Again, being confronted with our sin, rather through another person or by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to say, I wouldn't put it past me. 
I, I probably did do that. Um, my motivations were probably impure about that. You know, certain actions or um, things we say we can, we might not have said them or done them, but maybe we thought them. And maybe our thoughts came through somehow, despite ourselves. Maybe our epidermis was showing. Um, and so um, having that humble approach, well, I wouldn't put it past me. It's part of the Christian life. And so we talked about this life of repentance is actually a life, um, and I use the, of, of living within the revolving door. And if you recall from last week, I used this image of a revolving door, and not just any old revolving door, because I hate, personally hate all revolving doors, because I'm afraid of them. But the kind of revolving door that used to exist at the Birmingham airport where it was automatic, so I was always going, you couldn't stop it so that you could get in and then start it again. And you had to get in there with, with your luggage, which is the worst. You had to scoot in with your luggage and then move at their pace to get around. And I hate that. I hate that, and I love that as an image for the Christian life because because of the things that are out of our control in this life. Um, certainly our sin is out of out of our control, and yet by God's grace, we repent of it. We fall down on our knees. He forgives. We, his forgiveness, his mercies are new every morning. Um, we hear that absolution as we just heard it in worship now, and it's as though God raises us up from our knees and stands us up on our feet and sends us out into the world, um, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that then um, as we're out there seeking to live in such a way that we love and serve God and others as ourselves and we find ourselves falling short of that ideal we fall once again on our knees and so there's that um, that that life of a revolving door that rotation back and forth of what um, what happens as we're simply living this life and allowing the circumstances of our own sin and the circumstances of life to humble us allow God to humble us and then to raise us back up on our feet so I love that image of the revolving door in part because just like the old revolving door at the Birmingham airport, we are totally not in control. Um, and that, that automatic revolving door is the worst kind of revolving door. And this idea of not being in control um, ever is so true. But I think of it especially when we get back to that, um, remember that point number one, being in Christ, one of the things that sharpens our faith is um, is the way... God allows certain things to be sent our way in this life. The things that we would never want for ourselves. We would look at other people's lives and we might say, well, she has it so much better. Or, why didn't, why could, why couldn't I have that kind of trouble, Lord, that that person has? Cause that would be so much easier than the trouble that I actually have. Um, we look at the suffering of our lives and we long for something else. We long for a peaceful life. If I could just get beyond this we say, then everything, everything will be great. All will be well. And so we, we're on our knees all the time about asking God to remove certain things from our lives, to change certain things from our lives. Heal me, Lord. Change me, Lord. Would you remove this painful circumstance from my life? And yet it's right in the midst of that painful circumstance that God is doing his work. And that is what that first point would say. And it's right in the midst of that painful circumstance that God is sharpening and honing our faith, that he's humbling our pride, which is the root of all sin, and our unbelief, which is the other root of all sin. It's in the midst of the sufferings of daily life that God is doing his work. And that's the point of this class today. And so I wanted to begin um, with this in mind, that we are not in control ever, with um, Jesus' engagement with Peter after the resurrection when they're at the Sea of Galilee. And if you recall, um, Jesus is on the bre- on the shore making breakfast for the disciples, and Peter recognizes him and and run he jumps out of the boat and comes to see him and jesus restores him into fellowship with him and some people see these three questions do you love me 
um, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Um, these three times that he asks him, do you love me? And then the commissioning, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, um, feed my sheep. These three um, commissions are a, a way of showing that Jesus has forgiven Peter for his betrayal, of, or excuse me, his denial of Jesus, his threefold denial. So we've probably heard many teachings on that. But I love, we often don't get to verse 18, and I love verse 18. Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John points out that this is to show what kind of death Jesus, uh, Peter would suffer um, towards the end of the, his life, his martyrdom. And we know that he was, uh, church tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down in Rome in the 60s, AD 60s. Peter, um, and, and that the reason he was crucified upside down was he said, don't crucify me in the same way as my Lord, because I'm not worthy to be crucified in that same manner as my Lord. And, and w- What's so hard about this is that this is not just about the suffering surrounding martyrdom and Peter's martyrdom, but this is about every single one of us. I think this phrase that Jesus says to Peter about his martyrdom death could be used for us. This could be said about a modern death in a nursing home. Do you hear that? How many of us who have stood by aging parents or grandparents have seen that um, that giving up of autonomy that is necessarily a part of death and dying. It's part of the suffering surrounding death for every single one of us, usually. There is that um, that not being able to dress ourselves, not being able to do those things for ourselves, that lack of, um, that loss of pride in the simple things of daily life, even that suffering, that end-of-life suffering that will likely be there for every single one of us, even that is God's work of sanctification in us. In that, he will humble us um, to submit to even the mere circumstances of our lives. And this is contrary to what society says. Society says, no, buck up, you can do it. Don't allow the world, don't allow this to get you down. Cheer up. You can stand strong in the midst of this. You can resist this kind of humbling of your circumstances. And yet it is in the midst of these humbling circumstances that are out of our control that God is very in a very targeted way he is very often dealing with our pride and our unbelief and that's not to say that suffering is in direct correlation to sin jesus takes says this so clearly in the gospels at least twice um that sin is not in direct relationship to suffering you know the tower of siloam did not fall on these people because they were more sinful than those people it just happened and judgment will happen suffering will happen regardless of um, degrees of sin. Or with the man born blind in John chapter 9, Jesus said it wasn't because of his sin or his parents' sin that this man was born blind, but rather it was so that God's glory would be displayed in all the world. So we cannot say that there's a balanced equation between our sin and our suffering. It's not this and that equally balanced. Um, So we can't, we would never want to say the kinds of things that some uh, well-meaning but very wrong Christian pastors have said when they look at um, the falling of the twin towers at 9-11, for example. We cannot say with certainty, um, oh, that happened because of the sinful licentiousness of New York City. It's not God's judgment upon New York City. It's not for us to say. Um, And yet in the moment for that individual person whose life was totally changed by what happened on that day, they might say, this was God's way of taking away from me 
something that I was treating as an idol. And maybe if they were to say that, then we could say, well, maybe that is um, judgment. But we would want to remove ourselves from pronouncing judgment based on suffering. So in, in our own hearts, we don't want to always assume it's suffering. And we'll get to that when we look at Romans 8. We, we shouldn't always assume, excuse me, that it's the direct result of our sin. And yet, through our suffering, God very likely is um, tackling the root of sin within us, that root of pride and unbelief that I've already mentioned. God works through suffering. This is a hard thing for us to think about because it looks like nothing's happening. It looks like a lot of pain and distress. Um, it looks like uh, he's silent. It looks like he's absent from us in the midst of our pain and our distress. And yet we can trust that God is at work. And I'll get to a big point about this in just a minute. But looking at scripture, I love these points from Genesis 50, um, where Joseph, remember all the things, the terrible things that happened to Joseph. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused of idolatry of adultery and he was thrown into prison um, and terrible things had happened to him um, and yet he said to his brothers when they came to him in Egypt and he fed them he extended grace to them by God's grace Joseph extended grace to them and forgave them and he says to them as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring about um, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There's this um, understanding that God can work good even through the sin of other people and the suffering that ensues because of that sin. God can redeem and make good um, come out of evil. And there's also this word from Psalm 119 that there is this um, this change that often happens as a result of suffering. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That's the marvel of someone looking back on their life, looking back on their life before some kind of terrible suffering had happened and seeing, I, I was so rebellious and proud. And then I went through this terrible thing. And on the other side, miraculously, lo and behold, I had an obedient heart that I didn't have before in some measure or some regard. Um, and then there's this word from Second Corinthians that is so comforting. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And Paul here um, is tackling that idea of being in Christ. Because we are united with Christ, um, we, we do take up our cross and follow him. And our cross might look very different than his cross looked. And yet it will be excruciating in some ways. It will be something that we cannot control, that we cannot manage, that we cannot get out of despite all of our prayer and all of our effort. We can't get out sometimes from underneath the things that happen to us in this life. And yet we can trust that God is somehow working good in the midst of them and that as we have abundantly shared in his suffering so also we'll abundantly share yes in glory at the last day and also in the comfort of the Holy Spirit today even in the midst of trials and suffering I'm going to pause right there and just take a breath and let you um Oh, I'm going to read this first, and then I'm going to pause. I'm going to take a breath. Um, there are a couple of good um, quotes from wonderful Reformed pastors and scholars in light of this idea of God's providence, that somehow he is working good in the midst of um, of life. And then I'm, after this, I'm going to look at um, some of the Lutheran ideas behind this. So here's a little Calvinism. By this union with Christ, believers are changed into the image of Christ according to his human nature. Again, bearing our crosses, just like he bore his cross. What Christ affects in his people is, in a sense, 
a replica or a re reproduction of what took place with him. Not only objectively, but also in a subjective sense, they suffer, bear the cross, are crucified, die, and are raised to newness of life with Christ. They share in a measure the experiences of their Lord. And then again, these afflictions have the same use and end to our souls that frosty weather hath upon these those clothes that are laid and bleaching. They alter the hue and make them white. I don't know so much about putting clothes out in the snow or in the cold to make them white, but I certainly know about with the sun. I just think about the worst sunburn ever happening to the clothes that you lay out to bleach or to allow the stains to come out in the sun. Um, in the midst of that fire or that frost, God is changing us despite ourselves. And this is one of those things where you can really see how passive we are in it. <laughs> Lying there, <laughs> waiting for God to change us, allowing God to change us through through what happens to us. Um, and so looking at this, let's look at this is more of the um, Lutheran approach to this. And I find this I find this really, really helpful for me personally, um, because um, because, again, this is in light of the cross and in light of a theology of the cross. Luther described two different kinds of theology. The theology of glory, that some way of approaching God through our own effort, through our reason, through our natural abilities, through saying, well, we can look at the world and we can say he's omnipotent and he's omniscient and he's all of these things. And that's all wonderful and good. But what do we do then with God as he is revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ? How does that fit into that schema? And Luther would say you can't start with a theology of glory. Uh Uh-oh. No, we don't want to go to YouTube. All right. How about we turn it off and turn it back on? There we go. Um, we don't want to go start with... Um, I forgot what I was saying. Uh, it's YouTube that got me off track. We don't want to start with this theology of glory where it's a can-doism, where we say we can approach this, we can know this in our own strength. With our reason, we can understand this and this and this about God. Rather, we want to seek and approach God as he has revealed himself in Scripture and specifically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We don't know the majestic, immutable, faraway, transcendent, holy God unless we know him in the humble and broken person and work of Jesus Christ, the human, um, fully God, fully man um, aspect of God's revelation to us. And so Lutherans want to focus in on that, the theology of the cross, which um, we're there on the cross. We would say, where is God in this? Where is God in this moment from the foot of the cross? Where is God? And yet it's by faith that we have to trust, even in that moment, that God is doing something miraculous. And in hindsight, we say that. On the third day, we say, oh my goodness, we had no idea what he was doing. Just like those first disciples, they couldn't even fathom what God had done in raising Jesus from the dead. They were in the depths of despair, hiding out for fear of their own lives, depressed because the entire movement that they had put their hope in seemed to be dead, dead, dead um, with their dead, dead, dead Lord. And here suddenly on the third day, God has raised him from the dead. And the cross then viewed in light of that shows the glory and power of God's work on the cross. There he was accomplishing our salvation. And they had no idea at the time, even though Jesus had told them many times over. They had no idea at the time. And we see this for ourselves as well. Practically speaking, a theology of the cross looks at our lives and says, in that terrible moment, in the moment of the DUI and the night overnight in, in prison, in the moment of the uh, of, of 
the word from the doctor, the phone call, when everything drops, um, when life changes irrevocably in the announcement of a, a cancer diagnosis, in the um, illness that maybe a child has, or in the change that happens in work, a demotion, or worse yet, a firing from a job that we've held dear. Um, in all of these moments that feel terrible and awful to us, the theology of the cross, an approach that um, understands God's work even in the midst of the darkness, would say, God is doing something here. We don't know what. We don't have to know what because we're not in control, but we can trust him. And we're called to live by faith in this moment, looking forward to the future then when maybe we'll see and know more of what God is doing and what God has done through this moment. And so Gerhard Forday, the Lutheran scholar, describes sanctification as God's secret. It's hidden, perhaps especially, even from the sanctified. And yet God is working out our sanctification. He is the one who is accomplishing it, um, even through our suffering, especially through our suffering. And so for us, in the midst of that suffering, um, we must live by hope. There's some wonderful stuff from Luther that, just to touch on very briefly, Luther talks about his... Luther has these letters of spiritual counsel that he wrote throughout his lifetime to people who were suffering in some way. And they were, they were marvelous uh, work. They're wonderful to read for comfort because um, he's very comforting and he's also very honest. Um, so he talks, this was to someone on the suffering and death of a loved one. He says, God has so ordered and limited our life here that we may learn and exercise the knowledge of his very good will so that we may test and discover whether we love and esteem his will more than ourselves and everything he has given us to have and love on earth, including this person's spouse who had just died. And although the inscrutable goodness of the divine will is hidden, as is God himself, from the old Adam, as something so great and profound that man finds no pleasure in it, but only grief and lamentation, the loss of a loved one, we can't see beyond it. We're submerged in grief. We nevertheless, nevertheless have his holy and sure word, which reveals to us this hidden will of his and gladdens the heart of the believer. For it is written everywhere in the scriptures that when he chastises his children, he does so out of pure grace and not out of wrath. It's not because of something bad that we've done that God sends us, allows these afflictions to come our way. It's rather his gracious love that doesn't feel like love. It's his gracious love that's transforming us by his grace, allowing us to let go of those things that we would place before him in our estimation, those things that would become idols. So St. James says that we should count it all joy when we fall into diverse tribulations, for tribulation works patience and patience experience. Since you have abundant knowledge of the word of God, therefore, I hope that you will know how to put it into practice so that you will find more pleasure in God's grace and fatherly will than you will have in pain from your loss. If we are sure of God's grace, everything will be well with us, even if, like Job, we lose all that we have. Isn't that a good quote of comfort, even in the midst of the terrors and the sufferings of this life? Well, there are a couple more um, Luther quotes, but I feel like we need to turn right now to Scripture. So you'll have to... Email me if you want to know these quotes, and I'll send them to you. They're wonderful. Um, let's look. Um, yes, it's it's God's wisdom. God's wisdom is um, 
wiser than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. First uh, Corinthians 1 is a great way of finding the theology of cross in Scripture, that um, the cross is folly to we who are perishing. It seems foolish. It seems um, it seems uh, useless. It seems painful and, and without point, pointless. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. By faith, when we live by faith, we can trust that God is working something out. And this is what Romans 8 has to say. Romans 8 looks at this idea of um, the grace of God even in the midst of suffering. If we know that our, um, we are justified by grace and through faith, if we know that God does not condemn us because of Jesus' death on our behalf, then we can stand in the midst of suffering knowing that it's not God's displeasure. He's not unhappy with us. He's not mad at us. This is not his retribution for our sins because he's laid all that retribution on Jesus Christ. So if there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then we can look at suffering and all the things we experience in this life. And we can trust by God's grace that he is somehow doing something good, even though it feels awful at the time. So Paul talks about this. I'm skipping down um, to verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the whole creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, there's this waiting, this longing, even in the midst of the suffering and the trials and troubles of this life. We, along with all the rest of creation, are longing, we're groaning for the perfection that will be revealed at the last day. We are longing to be perfected. We are living in the midst of our sins and failures and imperfections and in the midst of the sins and failures and imperfections of others and in the midst of the way that creation itself is broken. It's so broken that there are tsunamis and cancer, and heart uh, heart disease, and all the other things that, and mosquitoes, and tooth decay, and all the other things that plague our lives. Um, I often think of that when I'm lying, and my least favorite thing in the world, I had to get a feeling this week, is to lie in the dentist chair, because I used to be immune to Novocaine, as a redhead, Novocaine doesn't work on me, but they didn't figure that out until high school, after I'd already had several Feelings, and so I have this like mental block, understandably, against the dentist. And so, I ha- in order to not have a panic attack, I have to breathe and think about Romans 8 while I'm lying there. Like this is not the way it's supposed to be. Tooth decay is not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> what shall we say to all? And that's a minor thing, you know. So for the major things and the minor things, God is working somehow through them. Again, if we are not condemned in Jesus Christ, if God has justified us then we can trust that none of these other things, none of this suffering will separate us from the love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the theology of, of, of the cross, of sitting there in the midst of suffering, looking by faith to our sure and certain future because of our sure and certain past, and trusting that God is doing something. Even now, in the pit of despair, God is doing something. And we can trust in that, and we can stand firm in our faith in that um, because of what he has done and what he will do. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so, um, again, just to echo also St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talks about the things, the suffering of this world as a light momentary affliction in comparison with the weight of glory. The things that weigh on us in this life are actually, in God's economy, unweighty. They're slight. They're, uh, they're, uh, they're as light as a feather. They're compared, um, when they're compared with the weight that comes. This is the temporary compared with eternity. Um, the things that are seen are those things like um, being overweight or ill, um, having a complaining spirit that just doesn't go away, feeling depressed, um, being impatient with life, um, the ki- illness, the cancer, the tooth decay, as I've already said. All these things belong to the old creation, and they are a light momentary affliction compared to the unseen things, the reality that we are forgiven and free in Jesus Christ and that we are heirs with him of all eternity. So I'm just going to close this with a benediction. Um, and then if you want to have any questions or want to stay back, please do so. But I know I'm running up against time. Let's pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would take whatever it is that's plaguing each one of us, which there's always something, something small like mosquitoes and tooth decay or something big that seems far too big for us. And we ask, Lord, even in the midst of those big things, that you would increase our faith. Give us eyes to see what is unseen. Give us um, the, the, um, the hope, the hope that we have in you, that unshakable hope because of what you've done in Jesus Christ and because of what you will do. Strengthen and sharpen our faith, we ask, even in the midst of the suffering that you allow to come our way in this life and increase our trust in you in spite of it all. And we, we know that you will do this. We know that you are the one that causes us to grow in grace and holiness despite ourselves. And so would you do your good work even through the seemingly bad things that come our way? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.